Oh, right. And, and there's a good reason why it's confusing. Because most of it is nonsense. And, and I, I, I can demonstrate that. I realize that that's a really tough statement and that I'm you know basically slapping the face of modern science. I understand that. I get that. But I can demonstrate that time and time and time again. And I suspect that most people intuitively know that it's nonsense because of what you just said. It's hard and difficult to understand. In the same way that if I said, hey, I'm holding a cookie in my hand and it's speaking to me like a lamb. You know, you, you would think, wait, wait, what just happened to my guest? Did he just go insane? All right, welcome to And If Love Remains. I'm your host, I'm Mike Levitt, and I am excited to have a, a special guest with us today, Ben Hyde. Uh, ben Hyde is with Spark Science, and uh, he's somebody that I ran into um, over over watching uh, YouTube. I, I saw an interesting interview with him talking about the electric universe, and this is a subject that has kind of fascinated me a little bit. Um, it's such a different idea than, than anything that I'd ever heard of. And, and yet some of it makes sense and it's quite, it's just an interesting thought. And so I thought I'd have Ben on to, to maybe try to explain to us what the, the philosophy, what the, um, um, the paradigm is all about. Um, ben, just real quick, quick, um, about you, what uh, what got you interested in the electric universe, and and why, um, and how long have you have you kind of been interested in this in this thought? Great questions. What got me interested? Good. Uh, that I don't know. I was born curious, and I was okay. born interested in science. So that I can't, can't tell you <laughs> any more than that. How long have I been interested in this? Uh, again, my whole life. Okay. So I just I just ran across the electric universe a year or so ago, and I got to tell you, there's parts of me that's sad that I didn't find it sooner. Right. <laughs> it saved a lot of grief. What what um, I mean, I know you 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 have a strong interest and in, and a, a you know some background in in science. What did you find so um, compelling about the the electric universe? And then I want to ask ask from your perspective. Like, what is it? What are, what are we talking about when we say the electric universe? Well, that's an easy question to answer. I can do it in two words. Makes sense. <laughs> I should use three so, words. So it makes sense. Current, current astrophysics doesn't make sense. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Correct. No, it does uh, not. No, you know, it's interesting as – you know, I, listen. I'm I'm just a dumb musician, so so I don't know. Oh. You know, I I what, do the what best. What instrument do you play? Oh, I, I play the piano. I sing. I, I write music. Um, oh, that's so that's cool. what I've done. Yeah, so that's that's what I've done my whole life. And but I do find science just interesting and fascinating. And I think it should always be, you know, comprehensible at least to a certain degree to to us. You know, uh, you know, us guys that, that aren't necessarily in the science. Um, and so, you know, as I've studied about like, uh, you know, how, how, uh, um, Newton's ideas conflict with Einstein's ideas, which conflict with quantum physics. I mean, it, to me, there seems to be a, 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 a giant gap between 
<laughs> between all this, this, you know, what works and what doesn't. And, and yet it all seems to work. Anyway, so it's very confusing to the layman, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Oh, right. And, and there's a good reason why it's confusing, because most of it is nonsense. <laughs> and and I, I, I can demonstrate that. I realize that that's a really tough statement and that I'm, you know, basically slapping the face of modern science. I understand that. I get that. But I can demonstrate that time and time and time again. And I suspect that most people intuitively know that it's nonsense because of what you just said. It's hard and difficult to understand in the same way that if I said, hey, I'm holding a cookie in my hand and it's speaking to me like a lamb. You know, you, you would think, wait, wait, what just happened to my guest? Did he just go insane? Right. <laughs> because that's nonsensical. That's a nonsensical you know, statement to say, and people recognize nonsensical statements. And, you know, if they're curious about it, like I am, we pursue it and try and figure out what was really being said. And then all of a sudden we find out, wait a minute, that's really what they were saying. And it is crazy. And it is nonsense. And you're just like, wow, how did this happen? Yeah. And as, as, as you study it more, as you study the history of human thinking, you it becomes very clear how it happened. But wow, I, I'm getting way ahead, I think. Of, of no, the, that, that's OK. I, that, let me ask you this, because I know I've seen a few of um, the things you've done on Facebook. I see a few of the things that you, oh, um, you know, you're, you're, you are a, an experimenter. You like to you know try things out and figure out what what's going on. Right. Um, what? When you first encountered, so let me, in fact, let's back up one more step before I get there. What, um, what was it that makes sense? What is the electric universe? What did, if you can maybe summarize that, what would that mean? What is it? Sure. It's the idea that the major force in the universe is electricity and not gravity. Okay. Period. I mean, <laughs> simple. Yeah. No, it is that simple. It is that simple. And I think now there's going to be a lot of you know pushback from from the scientists about that. Um, but I think what what are some of the what are some of the the um, uh, uh, what are some of the things that you have, that you see that you found that have convinced you that this might be the right paradigm to Oh, go with. sure. Oh, this is easy. And, and this is anybody can comprehend this. It's the simple fact that our best understanding teaches us that everything is made of atoms. Atoms, of course, have two, well, three constituent parts, the electron, the proton and the neutron, two of which are charged particles. The electron is, of course, negatively charged. The proton is positively charged which means that every single thing in the universe has electric charge as its basis, as its nature, as its kernel. Hmm. When you realize that, all of a sudden, the question just screams to the mind, how can the universe be anything but electric? Now, to, to those who are thinking about this a little more, they're going to say, well, Van, but there are such things as, as ions and non-ions, meaning charged atoms and non-charged atoms. That's right. There are. And most of the things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis are, of course, not charged as we experience them. You know, we don't get electric shock every time we touch everything. 
but that's be, but it doesn't change the fact, even if you have a neutrally charged item, a thing like the straw, I'm playing with silly putty here as we talk, you know, the putty's not giving me a shock, the straw's not giving me a shock, the, yeah. the wooden table I'm leaning on is not giving me a shock, but that doesn't change the fact that the constituent atoms of the wood table, the silly putty, and the straw are made of charged particles. They're just in balance. Hmm. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. And and I know, you know, when you get into kind of um, when I have read some some quantum physics that that really kind of blew my mind. But but even even um, even at that level, um, the talk is about. Um, I, I remember one statement, somebody talking about how, how even when we touch something, if I if I touch a table, you know, I am not Here really touching the table, but I'm right. actually feeling that 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 force I'm feeling is actually an, an electrical a magnetic almost reaction to what I'm what I'm pressing against. Right. Um, it's the electric field. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Um, what one of the things that I was talking to my son and actually another person later on and, and the, the thing that got people fired up when I <laughs> when I shared it with them was they, they just it, like their eyes lit up was when I said, you know, he, here's here's a concept that is what is the sun? Like, how do you how would you describe the sun? And and, you know, they they talk about, you know, it being a ball of fire or a nuclear bomb in the sky, right. yeah, which is what you commonly hear. And mm-hmm. When I when I mentioned, well, what if <laughs> what if that's maybe not the case? You know, what if what if it is a a node? Um, can you speak to that a little bit like the on the cosmic realm? Like, what are some of the implications of a of a electric universe paradigm? Like, how are we how should we be looking at the universe? Oh, wow. Two questions. How should we be looking at it? And what does it mean? Um, <laughs> well, okay, that, that last one especially is a pretty big question. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah, is it a mean? loaded question. And I, I don't mind. I, I'll, I'll address it. It's, uh, it's just it might be bigger than one or two sentences. That's fair. Um, here, go, back, go back and tell me which, uh, which of those questions you want me to address first. Let's start, let's start with, let's start with um, what, would, what would the um, – how should we look at the at the universe if 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 we're looking at it from an electrical universe standpoint and 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 not from a gravitational universe standpoint oh, how okay. does how does it, what how should we look at it how should we look at it easy with an open mind as a scientist would a, right a, a, a true scientist is not someone with a phd or an ma or a ba or whatnot or wearing a lab coat a true scientist is someone who applies the scientific method to different scenarios in their life. In other words, they look at something, they experience something, they hear a story of an experience that we don't know about yet. The first thing you know, a, a true scientist would do is say, well, let's apply the scientific method. Let's create an experiment and test this and see if we can get validation for what you think just happened or what we just saw. That's how we should look at everything. But the more I study contemporary science, I am aghast because that is exactly what doesn't happen. Hmm. Now, granted, I'm painting that with a very broad brush and my apologies to all of the people out there and scientists who are actually doing true scientific work. I, but 
generally speaking, the consensus science is all about maintaining the dogma, maintaining the uh, model. And that is exactly what science isn't. Science is never about maintaining the model. Science is about testing the model to see if it holds up. And if it holds up, great. But you're right. constantly, constantly, constantly beating at it, beating at it, beating at it, seeing if you can overcome it. Because if you can, then the first thing you do, which is not what happened in, in our society now, but the first thing you do is change your model. When you get evidence that goes contrary to it, you change the model. But that's exactly what hasn't happened in so right. many fields of science. It's just, it's amazing well, to study I think, that. I think, you know, so many times we talk about theories, you know, we'll talk about the theory of evolution or, or the theory of, of the Big Bang or, or, or you know, but, but when I know what a theory means, but I'm not exactly sure a scientist knows what a theory means because it seems, <laughs> it seems to me like they're, they're treating them like laws and not theories. Wow, it's it's amazing that they they do treat them like laws and like they're immutable. I mean, the one that blew me away was uh, I found out that there's a scientist called Rupert Sheldrake. He's a biologist, an English biologist, and he's actually the one that that got me into this whole area of the electric universe. Uh, a few years ago, I listened to one of his things, and he talked about how um, scientists are dogmatic. And I'm like. Wait, scientists shouldn't be dogmatic. And he he specifically talked about the ten dogmas of science. I'm like, wait, there there shouldn't be dogmas in science at all, right? And and he just you know he just plainly discoursed on that, and it just opened my eyes. I'm like, oh my goodness, what happened? And so I started studying some of the things that he was doing, and it just and he was uh, involved or became involved in the electric universe, and it just went off from there. I'm like, wow. Here we go. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I know there's people like um, who who would claim and I think rightfully so say, hey, wait a sec. The paradigm that we've been using works. You know, we have satellites in the sky. We, right. we use Einstein's theory in order to calculate GPS tracking. Um, we can we can measure the um, the the the. the um, the Doppler effect and the expanding universe, we mm -hmm. can um, see that we, we can, we can see that that light is bent around stars and black holes and, and things. And um, so, so, so both on a practical and then you expand that out to more, uh, you know, universal or, or a cosmological level, like they, they see, well, what we've been using work. So why should we bother? Okay. There's so many things I need to comment on that. Okay, good. One thing, <laughs> I can explain all of that in one trite little phrase, and that is, there's more than one ways to skin a cat. Okay. Just because you can skin a cat with a sharpened rock doesn't mean that there's not better ways to do that. Now, I'm sorry, that's kind of a, a graphic, you know, image, and I apologize for that. But no, the, okay. concept, it, the concept is that there are multiple ways to accomplish a thing. And just because you get success with one way, it doesn't mean that there's not other ways or better ways or even truer ways of doing the thing. Now, the other problem that I, one of the things I wanted to comp, uh, talk to you about is scientists say, well, we've seen redshift. <sighs> no, 
there is a scientist named Halton Arp. He was an astronomer. And I say was because he just died a few years ago, which is really unfortunate. Halton Arp, his work demonstrated conclusively that redshift was an inherent feature of matter, that it had to do with the age of matter and not traveling, not distance, not motion. Now, the upshot of that is that that takes our understanding of the size of the universe, the age of the universe, the distances between galaxies and stars, and throws it all out the window. You're just like, wow. whoa, 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 wait, what just happened? Everything I was taught was just upset by evidence? Yes, it was. But you know what? Instead of trying to validate his claims, most of the scientists around him got mad at him. In fact, he lost his job. I think he was at the Palomar Observatory. He literally lost his job because he was trying to push this idea. And he actually had evidence for it. You can see it. It's been verified that the redshift that we have always been taught is a function of, of uh, traveling, of motion, has nothing to do with that. It has, it has a tiny little bit. I'm not going to say nothing. It, it has a little bit to do with it. But mostly it has to do with the age of a celestial body. And That's like, fascinating. Oh, it is. I, I'm actually reading his book right now called Seeing Red. And at the, at the beginning of the book, he says, you know what, guys? You don't even need to read this book. Just look at the pictures I've enclosed. <laughs> It'll show you everything you need to know. And just real quick, and I'll make this, I'm going to talk science here, but I'll, I'll try and keep it, you know, toned down. Yeah. There are, there are two celestial bodies that most people, that a lot of people, one of them everyone's aware of, and that, of course, is a galaxy. There's another little thing called a quasar. And like, what the heck is a quasar? You can think of a quasar as basically a baby galaxy. It's kind of like the center of a galaxy. Okay. It, it, it's not very well defined. And, and so if you have a hard time understanding it, it's understandable. But just think of it. You have a galaxy, a mature galaxy, an adult galaxy, and a quasar is like a baby galaxy. Well, scientists have looked at that and have determined that the the redshift is very, very big for these quasars, which by their understanding means that they're all the way out at the edge of the observable universe. Well, most galaxies that we can see are not on the edge of the observable universe. They're kind of close. You know, Andromeda is a few hundred million light years away. Right. That's relatively close. And uh, scientists have said, astronomers have said, there is no way that a quasar and a galaxy can be linked. They're too far away. Guess what Halton Arp found? He literally found gas and dust lanes connecting quasars with galaxies. And he found this over and over and over, which clearly tells us that galaxies and quasars are connected. The problem was, is that that defied the current model because the quasar was really redshifted. And you don't really have to understand redshifting. You just have to understand that the quasar was redshifted and the galaxy was not. And that means that there is no possible way, according to the model, that they could be connected. But Halton Arp discovered that, that redshift, and you can look it up, 
is intrinsic, meaning that it's a part of the nature of the galaxy. It has nothing to do with motion. And you're like, wow. So when, when you hear scientists say, we know this, we know the speed of light is this, we know, you know that gravity is this, and we know redshift is this, you have, to, you have to pause and say, wait, do we know that? Because this goes back right. to the question you asked earlier that I don't think I quite answered about Rupert uh, Sheldrake and how he discovered, uh, in, he was just interested in, in these type of laws of the universe. And so he went and studied, or he went to the um, Department of Metrology in London and said, could I look at the old textbooks that show the speed of light? And they said, sure. And so he's digging through these old textbooks where scientists and laboratories would measure the speed of light. And he found that the speed of light actually changed and changed dramatically from, I think it was 1927 to 1945. Really? It, 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 was, it changed. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Why, why did these things change? And he said, well, he, he, no, he, he asked the department, the, uh, the gentleman the, uh, in charge of the metrology department there, he says, did, did the scientists who put all this together, the information together, did they kind of just fudge it a little and they just kind of all got into groupthink? Right. And, and Rupert's little joke is like, no, we don't like to call it groupthink. We like to call it intellectual phase locking. <laughs> and Rupert's like, well, wait a minute. If they did it then, how do we know they're not doing it now? And the reason we know they're not doing it now is because in 1972, scientists got sick and tired of the speed of light constantly changing. So they just declared the speed of light by fiat. No they just, way. They did. You can look this up. 1972. The speed of light is now they're intimately tied to the length of a meter stick. So if the meter stick actually changes, we'd, we'd never know the speed of light changes because they're both intimately connected. We no longer measure the speed of light. It has been declared by fiat. That's like, That's not science. No, that's that's. That's a that's a royal declaration. <laughs> <laughs> and the more I study science, the more I find instances like Halton Arps, like Rupert Sheldrake. It's just constant. It's this constant barrage of scientists being dogmatic, of holding to a belief and holding on to their models like a security blanket, like a teddy bear. And say, no, 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 one, no one's going to take this away from me. Right. It doesn't matter what the evidence says. This is my idea. Right. And then, and then you ask your question, well, why would they do that? And this is where it gets a little dark and, and depressing. And it's because of money. That's where the money is. There is so much money tied up in nuclear, in uh, particle colliders and in telescopes that validate the Big Bang model of the universe that it's just not financially feasible. It's not feasible. It, it, let me say it this way. Would you, if you had a great job that was paying you money, would you just walk away from it? For well, no, of course not. Right. And, and neither do scientists and neither do humans. No, no human does that. You know, they, they need to feed their families. But unfortunately, it's based on a flawed model. And it's been based on a flawed model since before you and I, in fact, before our grandparents were even born. Well, what? <laughs> this is, I mean, this is. One of the things that, that attracted me to the Electric Universe is 
the ability to, um, if not confirm, at least duplicate um, yes. phenomena in the laboratory. As far as, and I think one of the most exciting projects that I've only heard of on uh, it, it, within the Electric Universe community is the Sapphire Project, which is absolutely yeah. stunning. Oh, um, so you saw you saw the video. I saw the video, and I Man. think it's it's one of the most amazing. I mean, that's Nobel Prize winning kind of stuff that they're doing there. It's couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Um, but also, even but even um, you know stuff that that we can do here what um what what are some of the things that that maybe we see uh, and i'm thinking of things like like canyons yeah i live in arizona so of course the grand canyon um you know the way the way that, that those are typically explained is the colorado river you know for billions of years carved out you know the the um you know the grand canyon and what a wondrous site we have it and but the electric universe model has a different and and there's ways to experiment and and um, anyway, I, I'd like you to maybe talk to that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. There are ways to experiment. In fact, you probably know that I have done that in my backyard. And I will help anybody set up this apparatus in their own backyard, and they can start experimenting themselves and see that this actually happens. What I have back there, and what some of your listeners may not know, is just a small box about the size of a car battery. It's electric neon sign transformer. And I got it for free, Mike. <laughs> I called up my local electric sign company. I said, hey, do you guys have any transformers up there that, you know, maybe you're throwing away that don't quite work right? And they said, yeah, we do. So I went up there. We rummaged around in their bins, and I got a transformer. And it just had it had some scars on it, some, some little breaks and scratches. And they were going to throw it away. And I'm like, well, does it still work? And they're like, yeah. I said, can I pay you for it? And they're like, no, you can just have it. <laughs> <laughs> so I took it home. This is a neon sign transformer. So, I mean, it's safe it, because it it puts out huge voltages, 12,000 volts, but it only has 0. 0.02 amps. Oh, wow. And it, it, if you don't know about electricity, just know that 0. 0.08 is lethal. Okay. 0. 0.08 and above is lethal. This okay. thing is about 0. 0.02. So it's just it's fine to play with. I have gotten shocked by it a few times. It's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's like probably, not, no, probably not the funnest experience, but you're not going to be critically hurt. Right. So anyway, I take that out and I just connect the two electrodes on one side or another and I put dirt on it and to see what it does. And I put the electrodes in different configurations. And if you want to see what I'm talking about, I've got the videos posted all over my Facebook page, the Ben Hyde Spark Science where I do these experiments just about daily, and you can see what electricity does to dirt. Because in the very most basic rudimentary sense, that's what we're talking about in the electric universe, that electricity played a huge role in forming canyons and mountains here on the earth. And there's, there's a huge story behind that. You can, you can look at that. You know, David Talbot delineates that very, very nicely. Yes, he does. But as, as far as doing stuff in your own backyard, you just need a transformer and dirt. That's it. I mean, well, the, current, the current one I'm working on is clay. Okay. And I, 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 the clay was too wet and it's been too wet. But every single day I've been zapping it as it gets slowly drier and drier just to see what it does. You can see patterns form, and these patterns that form in the dirt or the dust, you can find identical patterns on the earth. 
That's how we know that electricity played a part in the formation of mountains and valleys on the earth. Because electricity is scalable. The effects of electricity are scalable. That means that they work on the laboratory bench level and they work on the planetary level and they work on the galactic level. And you can see the same shapes, the same features, the same type of events happening on every level. That's that is that's remarkable. Oh, what, it's, um, it's fun. Oh, no, I bet I, I'm going to have I have seen a few of your videos and I'm looking forward to seeing seeing what happens to that clay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I've created fulgurites. If anyone geology students out there knows what a fulgurite is, you know, you can make fulgurites in your backyard. I mean, they're, wow. they're tiny. Mine are just, you know, barely an inch long. But I mean, you're zapping dirt and creating this chimney channel pathway that fuses dirt together like that's cool. Well, and even my and 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 I may be misthink misremembering here, but I, I seem to even recall like you can even explain things like petrified forests and things like that. Yes. with the electric universe, right? Well, Peter Mungo Jupp is an archaeologist, I believe, uh, in Australia, and he has shown evidence of that. You know, he pulls out fossilized, uh, you know, trees, and he says. Um, this is not millions of years old. This was found <laughs> after a storm, after someone saw a lightning strike hit a tree or something, and they walked over to it, picked it up, and it was fossilized. And you're like, wait, fossilization isn't a million-year-old process? It can be done immediately with electricity? Yes, it can. Right. And we have evidence for it. And, and again, it's you can you can do it. You can recreate it. And that's... Right. That is phenomenal to me. And here, here's the other thing that that, that um, excites me, because what it does is, is um, and again, I'm an artist, so you have to. I, I think in these terms, <laughs> right? But it, it turns a dead universe into a live one. Oh, uh, doesn't it though? Oh, uh, absolutely. It really does because, um, you know, you think about how um, interconnected. Well, under a standard model, um, my understanding is is basically it's just we're, you know, lucky, God, however you want to define it, it doesn't matter. But right. but basically we're independent um, you know, entities that are good, that just so happen to be perfectly aligned so that, um, you know, so that gravity has the force from all the way from from a massive black hole in, in the galactic center that kind of controls the entire uh, uh galaxy you know to the sun um but other than that there's no connection it, it's dead space out there there's there's literally just like rocks hanging out there um and there's the no connection right where the electric universe maybe speak to that how how is that different with the electric universe well the simple idea and 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 this is actually science that was not not specific to the electric universe, but, you know, modern science has discovered that the universe is 99.99% plasma. Now, plasma is a, is a charged electric event. You know, most people knows what plasma is, but just in a very general sense, that's what it is. It's just right. ionized gas. And I think that my version of this, you said, how is it important? What's my takeaway on this? The thing right. that, that, that brings me comfort with this, because it is, it's comforting to know that we're connected. You know, from, from an emotional standpoint, if we live isolated lives, we usually are pretty miserable. 
I mean, yes, there are a few curmudgeons that can go out and be happy by themselves. And there are introverts that are happy by themselves. But in a very core sense, you know, all of us need connection with something or someone, you know, whether it's our art or whether it's another person or whether it's an idea. We, we need that. And the electric universe paints that idea because it, it deals with more than just electricity in the universe. It deals with the entire cosmology and cosmology in, in encapsulates everything that we are and, and or think. So it in, encapsulates biology, it encapsulates consciousness, which is a huge question in and of itself. Right. It encapsulates everything. Instead of just saying, like the standard model, there are rocks in space and they're attracted to us and they're going to crash into us one day and we'll all die like the dinosaurs. Right. That's, <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the model says. But the electric universe model, from a scientific standpoint, paints a different picture. It says that the planets are actually charged bodies, which we already know that. But as charged bodies, it's like two balloons with the same charge. If you bring them together, they repel. You're like, wait a minute. Are you telling me that celestial bodies tend to repel each other? Yes. Within a solar system, that's exactly what it looks like they do. So you're like, wait a minute. So then the we're, we're probably not going to get hit with an asteroid or a comet and all die. Yeah, that's what it means the likelihood of, of that happening is very, very scant. So, I mean, right. from, from a completely, you know, existential view, that's wonderful. That's a security blanket. You're like, wait, the universe is more of a safe place now than a dangerous place? Yes, it is. Oh, and, and, and like, like black holes, you know, when you tell a kid about a black hole, oh, yeah, yeah. Please talk, talk, talk about black holes. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, when I first learned about that, you know, I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's a scary monster in space. That's going to suck us up and eat us and we'll die. And there's nothing we can do about it. And that's a terrifying prospect to a small child. It's even terrifying as an adult that there's something out there in space that you can't see because it's dark. That is so powerful that it will just suck you up and eat you and you will die and everyone you will die and everything that you know will die and be destroyed. That's horrifying. But the electric universe brings out the idea that black holes are not these ridiculously mathematically constructed things. And they were. Black holes were never actually a real thing. They were always a mathematical construct that somehow over time work their way into the lexicon as a real thing. And you're like, oh, how did this happen? But the electric universe talks about that there are energetic entities out there in the universe and, and we measure them, but contemporary science is, is calling them black holes. But the electric universe recognizes these as plasmoids. And plasmoids, we understand, or we, we understand better than black holes. Plasmoid is just a, it's essentially a donut of energy, literally. It's a okay. toroid. It, that's what the shape is. And when it, 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 and this is just electricity, when it, when it gets bound up, when it gets condensed, it turns into a plasmoid shape. And this plasmoid shape has certain properties, and one of them is being very energetic. Well, contemporary science, from my understanding, has misinterpreted energetic with gravitic. So they look at these things. And, and, you know, there was a big thing in the news saying, we've just imaged our first black hole, which actually wasn't true. It was amazing. I did a Google search and went back and found out that a couple of years ago, the news media said, we have just for, <laughs> imaged our first image of a black hole again. 
<laughs> it's weird. It's it's like society completely forgot that we had already supposedly imaged a black hole. But I went back. I'm old enough that I remember that, and it was just like three years ago. Huh. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why are you saying that we just imaged it for the first time again? When here's a news article that says it right here, and it shows the picture. But the idea that a black hole is this sucking invisible monster in space just doesn't stand up to the evidence. Yes, it is energetic, but does it is it is it sucking all of its neighbors into it? No, it's not. It is just a wonderful energetic source. And that well, I think is such a relief. Yeah, well, I think that's what some people would say. Like some people would look at the the, the current image of, of the black hole that, that we have and, and say, well, isn't that an image of a, a, a black hole ripping a star, yeah. you know, into itself? Nope. And and you say no that that's that's a no. plasmoid. Um, in, in fact, it looks more like a, if you look at that actual image that came out last year, it actually looks more like a plasmoid than anything else. It looks it looks donut shaped. Hmm. I mean, just just go back and look at it. You you can type it up. It's it's easy. Just you know, oh, yeah. type in you know first image of a black hole, and it's it's orange and black. But if you look at it, it looks more like a donut shape than anything. And this, and, and and so really, it's all about like what we look at if, is truly de- truly determined by what our 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 focus is. In fact, you know, if we're if we're if we're looking for black holes, we're gonna every every uh, every problem is if you're a hammer, every problem is a nail. Exactly. You know? That's it. And and that will continue to be so if it's backed up by your livelihood by money. Right. You know, you take if we could somehow take that out of the equation, let scientists do the work and not be dependent on grants and not be dependent on money. Science would just accelerate fiercely. Well, and, and I, that's really- another thing that excites me is I do see um, the 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 people that are interested in the electric universe are the um, a lot of engineers um, a lot of backyard scientists who and experimenters, you know, but like you know, people who we think of in the in the nineteenth century of just like tinkerers, you know, guys yeah. like that, right? That that yeah. that that try to figure they're trying to figure stuff up out and how the world works, and it's such a far cry from the very um, sterilized university setting. Um, well, Christian Berkland, are, are you familiar with him and his work? I, I've, I've heard his name. I mean, I've heard of a Berkland Current. I, I yeah. don't know specifically. So, yeah, so he, he's the uh, the Swedish scientist at the turn of the century that went out and and braved the, uh, the winters up there to do his experiments. And he came to the conclusion that the aurora was powered by currents from the sun, the electric currents from the sun. And we now know that that's exactly how they're powered. <laughs> you know, we, we get we get coronal mass ejections and the and the auroras respond in kind. But at the time when he made that pronouncement, he was laughed at and mocked. And, and he actually died not knowing. Well, I mean, he knew himself that he was right. But right. I don't. But as far as we know, he did not get social validation and scientific validation until like decades after he died. Wow. It wasn't like the 1970s when we finally got satellites up that measured, that could measure, and were actually looking for what we now know as Berkeley currents. And they're like, oh, there they are. <laughs> they're, they're these big, long, 
strings of current that connect the Earth and and everything and all the other planets with their, our sun. And when and when was that? Do you, do you recall the the time frame? Was that was that fifty years ago? How when did that happen? Uh, well, Christian Birkeland did this at the turn of the century, so around the nineteen hundreds. He died, let's thirties, nineteen forties, if I remember right, and then the satellites went up in the nineteen seventies that okay. measured the Birkeland current. So, what? Um, so, so I guess that's another aspect of it. And, and um, again, I'm a novice at this, but but the idea how this electric universe, I don't think, is the 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 old, the newest idea. I mean, it seems to me like it's something that people have probably hypothesized for a while now. Well, they they have, and that's what's interesting. It, it was, um, oh, scientists, you know, prior to the turn of the of last century, were actually right on the on the path of proper. I'm going to call it proper scientific discovery, and then all of a sudden. It flipped, and the mathematicians got a hold of it, you know, like Einstein, and turned all physics into math. And math is not physics, and that's kind of where it went awry. But prior to the 1900s, the physicists out there were actually doing physical experiments and saying, oh, okay, here's how things work. And of course, it's nice to have mathematical models that help describe it, but mathematical models will never explain a phenomenon. They can only describe it. And most people are comfortable with saying, well, if you describe it or explain it, it's the same thing. But you know, not. And that is, that's a really, that's a really great point. I, I was, I was speaking actually to a, a, a piano student <laughs> and I promise it, it, it leads into it. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> but, go ahead. I, I play the piano myself. So. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. We, I was talking to him about theory and I said, you know, the, the, what you have to understand about music theory, we probably shouldn't call it music theory. We should probably call it music analysis because it's not the theory doesn't come first. The analysis, the, the music comes first. And yeah. then we try to yes. look back and figure out what was the composer trying to accomplish using the theory that we know. And I think sometimes we it, it sounds to me, especially when we're talking about um, mathematical physicists, that we're putting the theory in front of what is actually there. Right. Right. And you're like, wait, that, that, that's not science. In, in, I mean, anyone can understand that. You never right. do that. In other words, I can, I can create, I can, you know, create a mathematical model of something and then I can find, you know, a way to, to make that mathematical model work within the context of, of what I'm, what I'm trying to, you know, what I'm trying to say, but that doesn't necessarily mean, that that's what is actually there, that is actually what is happening. Right, because what we found is that a lot of times scientists will ignore evidence that doesn't fit their model. I'm like, wait, what? That actually happens? Yes, that happened with Halton Arp. Yes, that happened time and time and time and time again. They literally cherry pick the evidence that fits their model and they disregard everything else. I mean, oh my goodness. The more I study, the more I see that that's everywhere. Right. No, 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 no. This, this can't be right. So I just, you know, instead of giving up and totally going into despair mode, I just like, fine, I'll go do it myself. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's awesome. That's that's fantastic. Um, I had another question. Oh, if if you can, and I and I, sure. I'm very curious about your your idea because um, I. <laughs> let's just talk about comets shall we <laughs> oh let's do 
What is a comet? <laughs> well, up until the 19, well, up until recently, we were all under the idea that they were dirty snowballs. That's what, right. that's what Fred Whipple taught us. But <laughs> if you look at the history of it, you realize that Fred Whipple never actually observed a comet. This is a perfect example of what you just said about the theory leading the evidence. And then when the evidence came in, we just like discarded the evidence and kept with the theory. It's like, no, we, we've, we've sent, we have sent satellites that take pictures of comets. They've landed on comets, you know, 67P. There's a whole bunch of them that we've seen this with. They're not dirty snowballs. They are rocky surfaces with layers of dust on them that have plasma discharges going off on them. We've seen them. Now, scientists are saying that there's that the cameras are breaking or that, that there's something else going on with the cameras that they're, they're not admitting or, or even considering that the bright flashes on the top, on the crests of some of the mountains on some of these comets are plasma discharges. But any electrician can see that if you change... If you have a body and you put it through a different electric field, it's going to have a discharge. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole thing with uh, St. Elmo's fire. If anyone knows about that, that's what it is. You have a ship, you know, an old masted schooner ship that's going across the ocean and, and a storm comes up. And all of a sudden, these little electric lightning bolts start appearing on the top of the mast during a lightning storm. It was called St. Elmo's fire. That's what we're seeing on comets. That's, that's the, the blank part. And the tails are a collection of dust and electrical discharge. They're not dirty snowballs. We know that. And yet, I just saw this in the news the other day. They are still talking about comets as dirty snowballs, even though we have direct, incontrovertible evidence that they're not. Wow. That's, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. That's such a, you know, I, I don't even think people... Um, especially in the media. I mean, they're, they're just, they're just writing what they're told, but, um, but it is, but we have just this mindset that, that we just cannot get around. Um, you know, we slow going. (laughs) Oh, it is. It is. Well, um, I, I think, um, man, I have so much I want to, I want to talk to you about. We may have to do a part two at some point, but I want to, leave with you like allow you what what are two th- two things i want to ask you number one how can people find out about you and your projects and the things that you're working on and number two if people how would you recommend people going about learning more about the electric universe oh great questions uh i can leave an email spark science for kids at gmail.com okay if they will send that to me i will respond and in the response are all the links to my Facebook page, my YouTube channel, uh, and my phone number. Fantastic. Oh. And, I'll, and, and I'll also I'll put those in the, uh, in the show notes of the podcast. Great. And then what was your other question? And then how, can, how would um, people, if people find this interesting and want to learn more about the electric universe, how, what would oh. you recommend people would start? Oh, absolutely. Go to YouTube, type in The Thunderbolts Project and start watching the videos there yeah there are two different kinds there's there's electric universe conferences presentations that's the one that i've started on where you're listening to the pillars of the electric universe community like wall thornhill david talbot present you know it's their ideas from their mouth it's not being interpreted by anybody by a second part second or third party you can listen to what they say 
and get it straight from the horse's mouth. That's where I got started. So, YouTube Thunderbolts Project. Fantastic. Ben Hyde with Spark Science. I really appreciate you being on the show. It's been such a such a pleasure talking to you. It's been fun, Mike. And we, we got, let's do it again, shall we? we? Oh, absolutely. Fantastic. This is Mike Levitt with And If Love Remains. Um, check out our, our website, www.andifloveremains.com. We have a merch uh, there, so you know, pick up a T-shirt, pick up a, a mask if you dare. Um, whatever you need, we've got it. Uh, <laughs> so www.andifloveremains. Again, Ben Hyde, Spark Science. Thanks again. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike.